You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Bob Kuska, the author of Shake and Bake, The Life and Times of NBA Great Archie Clark. Bob, welcome to the show. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, I wonder if you could start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I've, I've been um, I've published three books. Um, Shake and Bake is the third one. Um, That just came out uh, in February. And if you don't have a copy, please consider purchasing one. Um, But prior to that, I did a book on the origins of black basketball in America. It's really the first in-depth book to to do that. It's called Hot Potato. Um, And then after that, I did one on, again, kind of a unique book on small college basketball. Um, and I focused on a, a college in central West Virginia and took a look at, it's, it's a then and now book. And, and I, I took a look at how um, the community used to rally around uh, the, the college before television and what's happened sort of in the post ESPN era. Um, my day job, I write about science for a living and um, I've done that for over 30 years. And I'm now, I continue on writing about basketball. I've got another book at in the works that's that's getting close to completion and it's on the NBA. So how did this project with Archie Clark come about? Uh, well, I just finished up the, uh, the small college basketball book and I wanted to do an NBA book and Archie was my favorite player as a kid. Um, I grew up in the, in the seventies. And um, so I contacted Archie and we set up a time to talk by phone and uh, Archie said, you know, let me think about it. And, um, and he agreed. And then just by, by pure luck, he happened to be, he came down to, uh, to Washington for a Washington Wizards ceremony. Um, and we were able to meet in Washington. We spent a couple of hours talking about the book and how, we, how we'd approach it. And um, we had a good rapport and, and, and onward we went. 
So when you're doing research from this for this book, and and it's it's clear um, you did extensive research beyond talking to Archie and others, um, certainly newspapers, etc. Um, do you co- do you kind of come back to Archie and ask for comments on on things that you found? Um, do you after you've written portions of the book or the whole book, do you run it by Archie to to see what he thinks or to make sure it's accurate how does how does that interaction work a little bit of all um what i what i did when i started the book um is archie and i we set up a time uh for a telephone interview i know he's in he lives just outside of detroit and and i'm uh, in the washington dc area way out in west virginia um so we obviously couldn't meet in person and um so we set up a time to talk by phone and and i kind of got a lay of his career um, and in life. And so what I did, that kind of gave me a, the general themes for the book. And then I went, um, you know, I would spend a lot of time at the Library of Congress going through uh, newspaper reels and, and so on to really pin down the facts. Uh, you know, I found with a lot of oral histories um, or, or biographies in which um, it's, it's told in the first person, um, a lot of times the facts can be a little bit loose. So I really want to make sure that everything was accurate. Um, I, as, as a part of that, I also did interviews with, with numerous players um, that Archie played with or were involved in the era, as well as magazine uh, work as well. And court cases. Yeah, also court cases. I, I really did dig, dig a lot. And, and so what I did is, is I gathered all this information. Um, I would go back and ask Archie if I could you possibly fill in a blank here. This is, this is what I've discovered and, uh, you know, sort of based on what you've told me and what I've, what I've researched, um, what's your recollection? Um, and then I would put together a draft and each draft, um, uh, Archie had trouble down, email him chapters to begin with, but he had trouble downloading them. So I would print them out and send them off to him. And then we would, we would talk. Got it. Were, were there, were there any, Ever any major discrepancies between Archie's, uh, Archie's accounts of events uh, and and what you found in through your research? You know, not really. Uh, Archie has a very good memory. Um, you know, there were there were some small things, but um, but no, everything was was. I, I think yeah. So there there would there would be small discrepancies in details. Um, you know, dates, details, things like that. But but for the most part, the general themes. Um, and, and what Archie remembered were, were totally accurate. Right. Um, Archie was uh, a fighter, um, as you portray in the book. And, and I mean that in a, a positive way um, and, and not a fight, not, not physical. Right. I, I don't mean he was getting into fistfights in the court, um, but he was he was a tough minded individual who um, was intent on. Standing up for his rights, really, at a time when uh, ball players, you know, due to the reserve clause and and um, just the the contractual situations in basketball, didn't have many rights. Um, could you talk about his childhood a little bit, and and maybe how he developed that that toughness that was characteristic of his career? Yeah, he came from a family that that had been in in Arkansas and. During World War II, um, you know there were jobs available in the um, GM uh, auto the auto factories outside of Detroit. So 
his father took the family up there. Archie was probably just you know, maybe four years old when the family went up there. Um, and they ended up in a, a little town or outside of outside of southwest Detroit called Ecorse. And they lived in public housing that was built by the automaker um, for, for, its, for its black workers. Um, and so Archie grew up there. He was a very perceptive kid. Um, and, um, you know, he, he looked at, at the situation as a, as a young black kid growing up and, and really the way that the world operated. Um, uh, he, he grew up poor. There, there were lots of kids in the family. And, um, you know, it was, it was difficult um, at, at times. And, and so, you know, he, he, he knew that he, he, he always loved sports. He always wanted to be a baseball player. He got very active um, playing um, playing baseball in e-course. Um, but basketball was never really his game. It was something that he played and he was pretty good at because he was athletic. But, but again, baseball was going to be his ticket. Um, and that's kind of interesting because um, in his senior year in high school, <laughs> he graduated midterm, so really in the middle of the season. I mean, he really had no, no plans for basketball. Um, but what happened when he got out of high school is, um, you know, like a lot of kids who grew up in, in uh, fact, essentially factory towns, Archie always imagined that he would get a job working in a factory just like everyone else. And, and those were good jobs, then too, unionized jobs. Um, and unfortunately, at, right about the time he got out of high school, um, there was a real economic slowdown. And, and so Archie was unemployed, and he was a member of a community or a group um, of, of friends, which sort of in modern parlance, we might, we might term a, a gang, um, but it was more just a, um, just a group of kids kind of watching each other's backs. Um, there were a lot of different towns nearby where the kids, say from River Rouge, would look at kids from E-Course, and there'd be, there'd be uh potential conflict between them, between the two. So it was always good to travel in groups. Um, but Archie was elected as the president of that, uh, of that group. And he quickly realized that this was not the future that he, that he dreamed of as a kid. Um, so it just so happened, um, and this is recounted in the book, that a friend came up to him one day and said, hey, look, let's just get out of here. We got to you know, go see the world. And, and at the time, Archie had a brother who had joined the army and was overseas in Germany, and the brother would send home uh, letters talking about all that he had seen in Europe. And, and the buddy said, "Why don't we do what your brother did? Why don't Why don't we join the army? We can join up on the uh, on the buddy plan." Um, so Archie thought that was a great idea. They went down to the recruiter station, um, and they had to take a test to to, to get into the army. Um, so they both did. Went home, waited a couple of weeks, and sure enough, Archie got a letter in the mail that. Uh, congratulated him and said, you know, please re report uh, such and such, and uh, you are now a member of the United States Army. Um, so Archie was stoked, went outside, looked for his buddy to see if he got the letter too, and uh, the buddy was kind of cool about it because, as it turns out, he flunked the test. So Archie was kind of on his own and, and went into the, the military. Uh, he, uh, he ended up being stationed in Korea. Um, this is right after the War. Um, it was a grueling couple of years there, and um, again recounted in the book. And um, but where everything turned for Archie is he was at the end of his stint in the army. He was um, stationed at Andrews, Andrews 
Air Force Base, uh, just outside of Washington, D.C. Um, though it was an Air Force Base, primarily there was a small Army unit, and, and Archie was uh, would show VIPs around Washington. That was sort of his, his gig at that time. And um, because he had some downtime, he would go to the Air Force gym, and he would play, play basketball, and he was quickly recognized as being one of the top athletes in the on the floor. So the Air Force coach asked Archie, hey, how would you like to join our team? And Archie thought that was kind of ludicrous because he was an Army guy. Um, but they said, no, no, don't worry about it. We've, we've done this in the past. Uh, just go back, um, ask your, your supervisor whether, um, whether he would sign a form um, allowing that to happen. And um, so Archie did. And sure enough, the, uh, his supervisor did sign it. And Archie, the Army guy, started on the Air Force team. And, um, while he was doing that, he was discovered by um, uh, the coach of the team was a University of Minnesota grad um, who contacted um, the coach at, at, at University of Minnesota and said, you've really got to take this kid, Archie Clark. Um, so at the time, Minnesota was trying to integrate. Um, they, had, they, they had signed two black players, including Lou Hudson. Um, and so Archie was tendered a, a scholarship offer, and he accepted it and went on to Minneapolis, where he uh, starred for the Golden Gophers for, for three seasons. And, uh, that took him right up to the NBA draft. You know, Bob, wanna, I, I always say um, the best sports books are, are not about sports, or put another way, are about a lot more than sports. Uh, you know, they offer a lens into greater societal issues or, or psychological issues or whatever it may be. Um, and I think this, this book is a great example of that. One of the, you know, one of the kind of themes throughout the book certainly is, is race. And um, for those that don't know much about the history of race in the NBA, um, you know, by Archie came in the league in 1966, conditions had, had certainly gotten better, you know, with, with, uh, you know, the, the league had been integrated for, I guess, 16 years by then and um, uh, conditions for African-Americans and opportunities for African-Americans had improved. But but uh, race was still an issue. So how, what was the state of, of of, you know, the opportunity for African-American ballplayers when Archie came in the league? Yeah, so the. The league originally drew the drew the color line, which was a very odd thing to do. This is in the uh, the precursor to the, uh, the NBA, the BAA. They drew the, the color line because um, really they it it was a business decision. Um, they they were a little bit concerned about uh, about catching on with the public with with, with black players. It was just the, the racist um, status quo back then. But more importantly, to um, was was the Harlem Globetrotters. Um, Abe Saperstein, the owner of the, the, the Trotters, he had first call on all the, the top black players. Um, and at the time, because the situation was ten, tenuous um, for pro basketball, um, they, a lot of the teams really needed uh, the very, very popular Harlem Globetrotters to come in and play a, a doubleheader for them so that they could uh, um, make some extra money at the, at the gate. But that fell away by about 1950, um, in 1950, with um, 
the drafting of Chuck Cooper and Earl Lloyd. And I remember I, I, I met with Earl Lloyd once several years ago and, and also another player uh, who played with Earl named Bob Wilson, um, was an early black, black player. And they both told me that at the time, black players were expected um, to do the dirty work. They, they weren't in there to score. They were supposed to get in there, set the picks, uh, rebound, and then get the ball back out to the, to the white stars who could shoot the, at that time, one-handed uh, set shot. Um, so that changes with, with the arrival in, in 56, I do believe 56 or 57 of Maurice Stokes, who was so talented. I mean, it was clear that things were going to change. You had Bill Russell in the college game, Will Chamberlain, and, you know, Elgin Baylor, Oscar Robertson coming through. So it had changed. You, in getting into the 60s, you did have some black stars, but there was still that concern. How are we going to market a game if it's dominated by black players? So what they did is the owners in their infinite wisdom um, came up with a quota system. It was an unwritten rule that you wanted to have a racial balance on your team. and That was really the solution. So by 66, when Archie came in, that was very much the, the status quo. And um, when Archie was drafted, he was taken in the third round. And, and that was really because the, the unit, well, Archie had been all Big Ten in his senior year and had put, put up big numbers. Um, but colleges back then pushed certain players as All-Americans, and, and Lou Hudson was the one that was being pushed, not Archie. And that's why he fell to the third round. Um, much to his disadvantage, um, because the Lakers selected him and really didn't have any plans to keep him, um, as, as the book starts out and, and shows. Um, he got Archie got lucky um, in that the player they planned to keep, a white player named John Wetzel, broke his wrist at the end. Um, and so the, the question that the Lakers faced was, do we want to keep another black player? to fill Wetzel, what, the position they felt that Wetzel was going to have. And they decided to do that. And that was sort of the launch of Archie's career. Yeah, I love, I love that you started with the, the book with that for a few reasons. One, because um, it, it shows how, uh, how easily Archie's career could have never happened, right? I mean, as an African-American, uh, if, if they had cut him, um, it's possible he, he, would have got, he would not have received another opportunity and would have just, uh, you know, dwindled away in, in the Eastern League or something or, or gone back to work in the factory. Um, but it's also uh, fascinating because it's a real snapshot of, of the power dynamic between teams, management, and, and players at that time. How, you know, how Lumos kind of strong arms Archie into accepting this you know, below market value, really $11,000 contract. Um, what, what was the power dynamic like at that time between um, owners, you know, between the teams and in particular unestablished players like Archie? Uh, basically, the, the owners held pr- most of the cards. I mean, there are, with a few exceptions. Um, but the system was set up for or management to dominate labor. Um, it, you know, it goes all the way back to the 1870s and, and, and just the establishment of the National League and, and baseball. And, and that paradigm has been used. Um, it was, uh, you know, baseball 
famously got its, its antitrust exemption in 1922. Um, and, and so the other leagues, without any approval, just kind of piggybacked that antitrust exemption. And that allowed them to allowed leagues such as the NBA to operate a reserve system, which had never been scrutinized legally in the courts, um, but, but it, it operated. And it was sort of this, uh, you know, something that, that players were, were told, you're, you need to you need to focus on your game. Don't worry about the business end. Um, and what what happens in '66 when Archie starts to come in is the contracts start to get big. Uh, the year Archie came in, um, the top draft choice was Cassie Russell of the, who, who went to the New York Knicks, um, who got what was considered then to be a pretty outrageous contract. Um, and what was different is Cassie Russell was one of the few rookies um, to have an agent um, who was able to negotiate a, a richer contract. The next year, Bill Bradley got a really big contract. Same story. He had an agent to represent him. But for Archie in 1966, coming in as a third-round draft choice, it you just weren't going to have an agent uh, represent you. Um, you know, there, there are stories that, that go around about about lesser players, not a, you know, so not a Russell, Cassie Russell or not a Bill Bradley, but somebody taken in the second or into the first round, um, trying to, to bring in an agent and the, the general managers and owners just flat out wouldn't talk to them. I mean, that was a quick way to, to get yourself booted out of the league and ever play. Um, so for Archie, and that this is how the book opens, um, Lou Mose, who was the general manager of the Lakers, says, I just happened to be in, in Minneapolis. And, um, you know, he fully expected, Mose did, to sign Archie within a matter of minutes. So this is the contract that you're going to pull out this dog-eared contract and said, this is, this is our offer and, you know, take it or leave it. And uh, in this case, Archie had to take it. And so Archie remembered this moment, just remembered how, how he got rolled by Lou Mose and, and really vowed never again. Um, and the book goes on to show how Archie went to rookie camp with the Lakers, thinking that he had made the team. But he, so he came back for, for the regular training camp, and that's when Lou Mose he stopped in at the Lakers headquarters um, to to ask Mose where he would be staying. And Mose said, "What are you talking about? You're not you're not staying anywhere. Why not? In fact, um, you probably have a better chance making the team in Chicago or Baltimore." Um, so. So yeah, Archie was not in their plans to to, to make the team, and and again, a lot of that had to do with, with uh, the, the racial balance uh, on the team. So one of the you know interesting themes throughout this book is is this power dynamic between management and players, and and the contractual relationships, um, and it's fascinating to see how Archie goes from that twenty five-year-old rookie who gets ruled by Lou Mose to this sophisticated, um, you know, well-informed veteran who uses his leverage uh, about as well as anybody did in the game at that time. Um, so what, how, did, how did that transformation uh, take place for Archie in terms of both his, his business acumen and his ability to use his leverage? So as a rookie, um, Archie got a little playing time um, at the beginning of the season, but by mid-season of his rookie year, he was starting in the backcourt alongside Jerry West. 
Um, he then went on and had a very, there were a lot, the, the Lakers were bitten by a lot of injuries um, heading into the playoffs. And so Archie really emerged in that playoff series. Um, and so Archie was thinking, you know, I really do have a future in the league. And he worked out that summer with a guy named Woody Salisbury. And Woody is um, a few years ahead of Archie. Uh, he'd been a rookie of the year in the, in the NBA. And he uh, had a falling out with Bill Russell. He'd been playing in, Woody had been playing in for the Boston Celtics. Um, and that falling out actually was over a woman. It wasn't over basketball. Um, so Woody was a free agent and was hoping to, to hook back on with a, another NBA team. And Archie started working out with him that summer. And Woody Salisbury was a very perceptive guy. And at that time, uh, it was expected that the black players, veteran black players, would, would kind of look out for, for the rookies and kind of teach them the ropes. And so working out with, with Salisbury, Salisbury started telling Archie, this is how the system works. Um, what you need to be cognizant of is your productivity. That's what management wants. They look at your numbers, your stat line. Um, so you want to always make sure that you, you do the best you can um, to really bolster those numbers so that, so that when you go into contract negotiations, you have something to show them that they can objectively evaluate. Um, at that time, most of the, it was changing, but most of the players were uh, on one-year contracts, and so they would go in every summer to, to resign. And um, and that was the case with Archie after his, his breakout rookie season. And um, so Salisbury taught him how to how to move forward. And it's you know it's an incredible story. He goes from making eleven thousand, getting no rookie bonus. Um, to uh, getting a thirty-five thousand dollar contract, and maybe jumping a little bit to jumping a little bit ahead here, but he ends up um, making over a hundred thousand dollars in his third season. And hundred thousand dollars then was the, the the standard for for superstardom. And uh, you know, again, this is a third round draft choice who almost didn't make the Lakers. Bob, you mentioned um, early in our call that you that Archie was your favorite player as a kid. Uh, what was it that you liked about Archie or his game? Um, Archie would, would, he would term his game out. He said he was a quarterback. We would call it a playmaker today, but he was the guy who ran the show. He was very much in control. In fact, um, when he went on and played for the, uh, the now Washington Wizards, formerly the Baltimore Bullets, uh, his teammates there used to call him the general. He was the, the general who, who took care of things and, and kind of, he, very much led everyone else. But on top of that, Archie had a very kind of a little bit of a flamboyant game. Um, Archie developed some moves, some signature moves. One is, is we now know it as the shake and bake. Um, it's a series of stutter steps. Um, it kind of frees his man, his defender. He approaches his defender, dribbling the ball and stutter stepping to freeze his defender. And then he crosses over. And so it's one of the, the, the first great, crossover moves. And if you talk to old timers who remember Archie's move, they'll tell you that it's probably the greatest crossover move ever because Archie, unlike a lot of modern players, didn't carry the ball on the crossover. It was very, just a very tight move. Um, that would create space for him to um, shoot a mid-range jump shot or go to the hoop. Um, 
Also, another thing about Archie is when he was playing playing that summer with Woody Salisbury, Woody's about six seven with very long arms, and Archie's just six two. So Archie was having trouble getting his shot off to begin with. So Archie developed what would be, um, at least as remembered by other NBA veterans of Archie's era, as the first step back move, which if you think about basketball the way it's played today, you've got the step back move and you've got the crossover move. Those are two main <laughs> main moves of the modern game. And, and Archie was very much uh, one of the originators of both. Absolutely. So within a couple of seasons, Archie went from a guy who – you know, the general manager, Lou Moe, was, was pretty sure was not going to make the team um, to an NBA All-Star on a Lakers team that included the likes of Jerry West and Gail Goodrich in the backcourt. Uh, and, and then, of course, soon at, right after that, um, he was traded to, this, to uh, Philadelphia. Um, how did that trade come about? Well, the Lakers were owned by Jack Ken Cook, and Jack Ken Cook wanted a championship team for, for a variety of reasons. It was just kind of went with his kind of flamboyant nature. Um, and the problem for the Lakers all along, they had Jerry West and they had Elgin Baylor, but they didn't have a dominant center. Um, at the time, Will Chamberlain was done with, with the 76ers. He had had a, a conflict with the owner of, of the the 76ers, Irv Kozlov, about his contract. Um, Chamberlain had believed that, that Kozlov's partner, who had died of a heart attack, um, had promised Chamberlain a third of the, the seven, ownership stake in the 76ers. And when, when Kozlov's friend died of the heart attack, Chamberlain raised it with, with Kozlov, and Kozlov said, I don't know what you're talking about. And at the time... Um, Players, I mean, it's still the case today, but, but players could not own um, a portion of an NBA team. So nothing was on paper. Well, Chamberlain took that, felt like he had been cheated, and he, he wanted out. He wanted out of Philadelphia in the worst way and um, felt like he wanted to go to California. Um, Wilt had a pretty large contract as well, um, and it, it took somebody like Jack Ken Cook who would be willing to pay all that money to bring Chamberlain to Los Angeles. It's, so with that sort of as prelude, um, the deal had pretty much been set up that that if Jack Ken Cook was willing to, to sign Chamberlain to a new contract at the rate that Chamberlain wanted, um, that the 76ers would be willing to take some some Lakers. Among those, the, the the player, one of the, the, the players that they wanted was Archie. So it was the three three players that they chose: um, Jerry Chambers, who great player at University of Utah, um, and a top draft choice. Uh, Archie and Daryl Imhoff, who's a veteran center who had been an early draft choice um, in back in about 1960. And um, but Archie was a key player in this, and Archie realized that that. The 76ers wanted him under contract before they would trade Chamberlain. And so Archie, using everything he learned from Salisbury, realized that he had leverage over the Lakers and was able to use that to up his his salary to over $100,000, which is what I just mentioned earlier. Um, And so all of a sudden, Archie is making, is one of the highest 
eight guards in the NBA by his third season. So after, of course, you played in Philly for a few years, um, and then and then moved on. He ended up in total. Archie played for five teams over ten seasons, which um, is a lot of movement for a player his caliber. Um, you know, Archie was a two-time All Star. He was uh, he made second team All NBA one year, um, and especially back then, there wasn't as much player movement as there is now. Why do you think a player of his caliber bounced around as much as he did? I think one of the important things to take into consideration is really trajectory. And that is trajectory that you come into the league. Archie was not a number one draft choice. He was not somebody that the marketing department got around from the get-go. They didn't hand him the basketball. Um, So Archie had to fit in and he became a very accomplished player. And that's why the 76ers wanted him. But what the book also shows, it's the term that a lot of players still use today and is very apropos, and that is, in the NBA, if you're going to make it, you need to find the right fit. And the 76ers weren't a good fit for him. Um, you know, as the book goes and, and, and talks about, um, Jack Ramsey, who was a great college coach, um, was a rookie NBA coach who's just learning, he's learning the ropes. Um, he wanted to adapt his college coaching system to the NBA. Um, and, and what he ended up doing is he subtracted a lot of really talented players, um, really set up the, the, the famous uh, 76ers in the early 70s that set, up, that set the record for the, the longest or at the most losing season in NBA history. That was set up by Ramsey. Um, and so Archie realized that he really needed to get out of Philadelphia, that it was a bad setup. And so um, his value was still high. Um, he was putting up good numbers with the, with the 76ers. He just wasn't appearing in all-star games. Um, and so he got traded to the, the Bullets, where the fit was very, very good. He got there. Gene Shu, who was the coach of the Bullets, said, I need a veteran playmaker, and kind of handed Archie the ball. Um, not only that, Archie was playing with Wes Unseld, um, who's an undersized, but a pretty established young center with a phenomenal outlet pass, which allowed Archie to, to run the fast break and, and, um, and really just shine. And that's when he, all of a sudden he's an all-star again. He, not only that, he's a second team all pro. So what happened is the bullets started, they made a trade. They got Elvin Hayes. So suddenly they've got Elvin Hayes, Wes Unseld, Archie. They drafted Phil Chenier in the hardship draft. Phil Chenier was, had star written all over him. And so all of a sudden that the, the bullets are gearing up and Archie gets paid. He gets a, Archie gets into a contract dispute with the bullets, um, stands his ground and eventually wins. Archie, his, this case goes to arbitration. Archie's the first NBA player to go to arch, arbitration. Um, and um, in a really kind of interesting story, he, uh, he ends up winning. He gets a big, a big contract offer from the bullets. Um, and then, as happens with all NBA players, Archie got hurt. And so with the, the book goes from there, talking about that the challenge is once you've got a chronic injury, and the Bullets realized that, that Archie was, was getting older, and he's now damaged goods. Um, fortunately for, luck, for, for Archie, um, Bill Russell was now the coach for the Seattle Supersonics and had said, 
if Archie Clark's ever available, I want him. I want him to play for me. So the Bullets were looking to get rid of Archie, and Bill Russell took him. But when Archie was in Seattle, he realized that he was pretty much, um, with his chronic injury, it was a, a shoulder problem, that, that he was pretty much looking at staring retirement uh, in, in the face. And, and so he, he finished that one season with Seattle and then just added another season with Seattle, with, with Detroit the following year, and then retired. I had, I had mentioned to you that I heard an interview with Walt Frazier a few years ago in which he was asked which players from his era don't receive enough recognition. And of course, he for, at first only half jokingly said all of them, um, but then went on to name a few specifically. Actually, I, I, the, Phil Shadier was one of them, and 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 the other was was Archie Archie Clark. Um, and you know, as me for me personally, as a huge Knicks fan, that that obviously I have great respect for Walt Frazier. That really resonated with me. Um, does Archie feel like he doesn't receive enough credit or recognition for his career? Um, Archie's a pretty humble guy. I, I gotta say, I mean, I, I, I would say no. I mean, Archie's Arch, Archie's had a great life, and and he he realizes that. Um, you know, I think that he would have liked to have been a first round draft choice. I mean, there's a little bit of, you know, why didn't the why didn't University of Minnesota promote me a little bit? Um, and that would have made his entry into the league a lot easier. Not only that, if he had been a first-round draft choice, perhaps the marketing department would have gotten around him. I mean, if you think about it, he was with the Lakers, and all the attention went to Baylor and, and West, and, and, and rightfully so. Um, you know, he gets to Philadelphia, and the marketing department there has decided that their, 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 their new star, now that Chamberlain was gone, was going to be Billy Cunningham. So it was Billy Cunningham and then Hal Greer. Um, and then Archie was sort of, you know, an afterthought. Um, he got to Baltimore and for a brief period, he was, he was kind of the man there. And, and then, you know, all of a sudden he's got Elvin Hayes and, and some other phenomenal players around him. But Archie would say that that's fine. That was fine with him. All Archie ever wanted to do was win. He was in it to win. He wanted to win a championship. And so, Baltimore was a great situation for him, Baltimore slash Washington. And, and in fact, that team, that new, the nucleus of that team did go on into, to win, a national, win an NBA championship. But again, you know, as time marches on and you, you, you're going to pick up a, a chronic injury, um, it's going to limit what, you, what you're able to do on the court. There is that, that battle. And, and that's what the book goes into. Um, you know, I've got to say, when writing the book, I've had some people say to me, well, you know, you don't go enough into his personal life. That that was never really on the table. When Archie and I talked about doing the book, we wanted to focus on the business, because that the business of basketball, because that, that angle had never really been done. And 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 so that's what we did. And and that's what makes Shake and Bake a little unique than than most books, is it really does open up and show you how that how the business of basketball um, was transacted in, in the 1960s into the 70s, right up to the, the merger, which is the period when modern basketball, everything we know today, was really born. Uh, it brought the advent of free agency and um, big contracts and the merger of the NBA, ABA, and a, sort of a different style of basketball and, and so on. Yeah, you know, I realized as I asked the question about you know, Walt Frazier recognizing him and, and whether Archie 
uh, feels he doesn't receive enough recognition. That's some pretty damn good recognition, right? I mean, if you're ultimately, if you're uh, uh, an elite athlete, I think, um, yes, of course you want the praise and adulation from fans and it's nice to be remembered. But when one of the best players and even, you know, at the best same position as you of your generation um, speaks that highly of you, when when a guy with the reputation of a Bill Russell um, you know, lets your team know if this guy is ever available, I want him. Um, and, and that's, that's about really, that's about as good a recognition as you could get, I would think. Um, and I think also, you know, the, the fact that he did bounce around a lot um, has probably uh, affected the way he is remembered and that there's, he's not, he's not necessarily associated with one particular team, um, you know, and maybe not, brought back to team events the way you know guys of of to, to think of his generation again I, I my fallback is the knicks and of course they won two championships but you know guys like uh frazier and reed and the busher and bradley they spent you know eight ten years with the franchise so in, in addition to winning there they there's a greater association just because they were there longer um but i'm, I'm glad you brought up archie's injury because um and 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 I have to say I, I loved uh, I loved the the how you focused on the business side of the sport. You know I've read many basketball biographies, many sports biographies in general, and yes, it's always interesting to learn about people's personal lives and their individual stories. And there's some of that with Archie, certainly with his background. Um, but it was it was very interesting to me. Again, as I said to to use Archie's career to take a look at some of the bigger issues going on. Um, specifically, again, I keep coming back to this, the, the power relationship between ownership and player. And one way that was demonstrated was through injuries. Um, can you talk a little bit about, it, it's so different, you know, now I was struck, of course, now in the era of load management and, 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 and the power that the players have to look back at, at the way, players management and owners looked at injuries back then and dealt with injuries back then can you talk about that a little bit yeah i did an interview with archie's teammate um in philadelphia wally jones and which really really stuck with me wally had um come up and he's telling me that you know we were told you got to play if you're injured you have to play for the team um you know it, it was all about as long, you know, unless unless somebody shot you with a gun or you, you know you couldn't walk, you were expected to play. And with Archie, and think back to him playing with Woody Salisbury and Salisbury telling him about productivity. Archie arrives in Philadelphia and says to Wally Jones, "No, you don't have to play. Um, you know you, what you want to do is you want to you want to get out on the court when you're able." to play at your best. Um, and he tried to, to teach that to, to the other players on the team, which didn't endear him to management because management, again, just wanted players out there. If, if the team is, if the 76ers are going to play in Phoenix and Billy Cunningham is the draw, they want Billy Cunningham on the court um, playing. Um, they don't want him sitting out. But the, yeah, the concept of load management was considered to be ludicrous um, back in the, the 
1970. Just no way it could happen. And manage, management wouldn't allow it. I mean, there's just <laughs> impossibility. So players really did it. The players kind of put their foot down and, and would say, I can't play tonight, really at their own potential peril. And the book talks about um, a case a, a couple years I think it's Archie's third season in Philadelphia in which Wally Jones took that to heart and said, I can't play. I've got calcium deposits in my knee. I just, <laughs> and so he sat out for a while. And really that was the end of Wally Jones, who's from Philadelphia. We went to Villanova is very beloved in the city. Uh, their, their general manager shipped him out. And that was, that was it for him. Um, he fell out of grace because he wouldn't, get on the court and play with calcium deposits in his name. Unbelievable. Um, Bob, can you give us a kind of uh, preview? As you said, you're working or almost finished with, with another book about that era. Can you, can you give us a, a brief preview of, of what to expect? Yeah. So this actually goes back to, to shake and bake. And, and when I started the book, um, you know, because Archie is not, he's not Oscar Robertson or Walt Frazier. He's not remembered the same way. Um, I was a little bit concerned about about marketing the book, and so Archie and, and also the editor at uh, University of Nebraska Press that published the Shake and Bake. Um, we decided it would be the life and times of Archie Clark. And what happened is, um, as mentioned, I interviewed Archie and you know, chronicled his his career. But the times part just completely exploded on me in a very very good way. Um, I talked to a lot of ABA owners, uh, administrators, um, NBA folks as well um, in the front office, um, who basically told me how everything worked um, and, and gave me insight into how the, the leagues battled each other. Um, I contacted somebody who is a lawyer in Dallas who had been involved with the, early on with the, the ABA franchise in Dallas, who was the league secretary. He sent me all the league meeting notes, minutes from the, the league meetings um, through the first four or five seasons. Um, I got all these incredible like, primary documents about the league. Long story short, I mean, I could go on a little bit longer about that, um, is I ended up writing a very long manuscript. And University of Nebraska Press wasn't going to publish something that long. So we decided to, to break it into two. And so I wrote what's published in Shake and Bake is Archie Clark's story. But all the, the Times part, really talking about the era um, and the NBA-ABA war, is going to be the second book, um, which the title will be Balls of Confusion, like the old Temptations song. Um, and and uh, so it's pretty much written. I just got to gotta write a few more chapters, and uh, it'll, be, it'll be a go. Well, I certainly look forward to it. I love the name, too, by the way. Um, but... I look forward to it because I, I really enjoyed uh, Shake and Bake. Um, you know, as I've said, it's Archie's story, his personal story is very interesting. But um, what, you know, what makes the, the book so rich is uh, just how, how you go into the business aspect of the game at that time. And um, just that dynamic between team and owner um, in so many ways. And, and of course, just some of the, you know, I was fascinated just by some of the um, details of, of daily life in the NBA at that time um, from, you know, of course, from hobbling 
through injuries on the court, but also uh, the travel schedule is crazy. You know how how they would, uh, the, you know, the games would end. <laughs> They'd have to literally run out the door of of, of the locker room to catch a flight to, to get in it at God knows what hour in the morning at their next location. Um, so uh, I think a, a lot of that, those are the type of things that made it such a great book. Um, once again, the name of Bob's book is Shake and Bake, The Life and Times of NBA Great Archie Clark. Um, and, you know, if you uh, if you love the history of the game like I do or want to learn more about it or or just interested in the even, you know, uh, contractual issues and 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 that type of thing, um, definitely check it out. Uh, Bob, I have one last question for you that I like to ask all of my guests. That is, what is your all-time favorite sports book? Well, this one might surprise you. It's a book. It's also published by University of Nebraska Press. Um, it came out a, a few years ago. It's a, the autobiography of uh, another forgotten basketball legend. Um, his name's Billy the Hill McGill, who is uh, the, the originator of the jump hook. Um, McGill was a tremendous uh, high school star in Los Angeles and went on to to shine at University of Utah, um, but he blew out his knee and ended up playing his pro career on a on basically one leg. Um, but he was a he was a first round draft choice coming out of Utah, and uh, because of his injuries, it was just tough for him to adapt to the NBA. And and, and kind of amplifying your, your point, I think sometimes you can learn a lot more about a system, about a, an organization, by focusing on people who are in the middle. Um, not not the super not the superstars who who don't have as, as tough as a, a job to, to negotiate contracts. Um, and so for Billy McGill, it just kind of tells the slice of life story. And you know things didn't always go well for him. He ended up being homeless and uh, kind of pulled his life back together. And the book um, was was a collaboration with a writer named Eric Brock. B-R-A-C-H. And Eric did an outstanding job telling the story. Billy, if you like, if you like good stories, this is it. Um, definitely get the book. Thank you. I will, I will definitely check that out. All right. Well, Bob, thanks again so much for coming on. Uh, it was great to talk to you about the book. Um, and, and best of luck with, uh, with the next book. Well, thank, thanks so much for having me. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to get the other one done. <laughs>